Faith and Reason Lecture Series is now in its second year. It began uh, to continue with the mission of Christendom's former academic journal, also entitled Faith and Reason, uh, to help bring um, noted scholars to the Christendom community and provide an outlet for their work uh, to contribute to the academic mission of the college. Uh, this year, the History Department is overseeing the Faith and Reason Lecture Series. Uh, but we have a full-time Faith and Reason coordinator, Dr. Trey Stanford, whose help has been invaluable in making this series successful. So I want to thank Trey for all the great work he has done uh, to make these lectures work. Um, certainly could not have done this by myself, and uh, he gets the lion's share of the credit. Uh, if you don't like them, I get the blame. Um, but I think I don't think anyone will get blamed. Uh, we have with us today a very distinguished guest, who some of you already know and who I know the rest of you will want to know after you hear about his work. Our guest today is Dr. Emmett Kennedy. Uh, Dr. Kennedy received his BA from Johns Hopkins University and his PhD from Brandeis. He is a French historian specializing in particular in the French Revolutionary period, and he has taught at several institutions, including Kent State University, the University of Toulouse, for almost 40 years at George Washington University, and now he is currently an adjunct professor of history at Christendom College, uh, where he is currently teaching a class on the French Revolution and Napoleon. Uh, Dr. Kennedy is a world-renowned expert in French Revolutionary history. He has published widely in it, uh, most notably in his work of 1989, A Cultural History of the French Revolution, which was nominated for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Uh, Dr. Kennedy continues to do research in this period, and he is currently working on a study, uh, the subject of which he will share some of with us today, by his discussion of Roch Ambrose Sicard, the Giraud of the French Revolution. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Emmett Kennedy. Thank you very much, Adam. Uh, it is really a pleasure to teach here. Small college, uh, bright, alert, interested students who attend classes, <laughs> because attendance has taken them out of the reasons, <laughs> but not, I hope, the only reason. And uh, one of whom reminded me last time after four or five classes that each class at Christendom usually begins with a prayer. Um, I, I hadn't known that. Um, it wasn't the practice in any university I've been to before, beginning with Johns Hopkins, and uh, it was a delight to do so. I thought for a second we were studying the terror, and I said, well, hail holy queen. Poor banished children of Eve in this veil of tears. What could be more appropriate for the terror? Um, I do want to, I have composed a prayer appropriate, I think, for the subject today, which is the deaf, and one of the founders of deaf education in the 18th century. There is a rivalry and competition among a number of them for the first uh, place in uh, originating deaf education, sign language. This goes um, to dear San Walsh, who is uh, the patron saint of the Abbe de l'Epée, who is the first teacher of the deaf 
in the reign of Louis XVI, the one who usually gets the credit and to whom most statues are raised and whose 200th anniversary is this year, 200th anniversary of his death. Saint Roche is a parish near the Hotel de Ville in Paris. He is buried there. And so it goes, Dear Saint Roche, to whom the Abbe de l'Epée and Coucheron Sicard prayed for the deaf and the dumb, as they were known in the 18th century, and led, Sicard, led his students to make the Stations of the Cross there during the French Revolution when this practice had almost dis had virtually disappeared. Help us who can speak and make sense with our voices. Encourage those who cannot make sense with their fingers, their hands, and their bodies. Amen. I've been debating whether to read this, or I did write this one out, or to uh, lib it. Uh, I think I'll at least start to read it. If I start out libbing, it will never end, I'm afraid. <laughs> the history of the French Revolution in the 20th century has witnessed the eclipse of 19th century biography and a focus on the impersonal forces of history, such as economic development, capitalism, colonialism, and now um, imperialism, and race, social mobility, or class struggle. The decline of monarchies and the growth of democracy from nationalism to totalitarianism, the consolidation of the state and its welfare and other bureaucracies or ideologies, the press and education, those are subjects of 20th century historians for the most part. The attacks on the church since the 18th century and its remarkable 20th century revival of the papacy as a world spiritual force certainly deserves to be one of the major topics. If individuals themselves have survived in this history, they do so usually as great leaders. Biographies of Lincoln, Churchill, De Gaulle, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao certainly abound. Occasionally we will find the diary of a Napoleonic foot soldier or a wet nurse of colonial Massachusetts surface and attract readers' interest, if only by relief as, a hist as history from the bottom up rather than history from the top down. Spiritual leaders like Mother Teresa or the Cure d'Ars were individuals who came virtually out of nowhere and have exercised extraordinary influence. For other reasons, historians like myself scratching around for a subject may pounce on a personage who has left a paper trail and perhaps little else. All other times, at other times, we are luckier and find such a forgotten figure who actually made a difference publicly as, say, a forgotten inventor or writer, which is not to slight the worth and accomplishments of other forgotten and unknown soldiers in the kitchen as well as the battlefield. Finally, it is possible that an obscure personality illustrates his or her profession or class in an exemplary fashion. These are our individuals who are nobodies today, who are definitely so-called somebodies in their own time. In short, the historian has the opportunity and even the obligation to dig them up, and he is tempted to always do so uh, where it hasn't been done before, and to 
answer to uh, brace himself for the question, is it worth doing? Here, in the case of a priest, one can write his biography if he was so... Here, the question is, we have a priest whose biography I have started to write and whose character is so flawed that one wonders, should one write it? Uh, ancients and modern French revolutionaries believed history should provide the exemplum virtutis, the example of virtue, like Cato or Cicero. Medieval monks, like St. Bede, tore a page out of his history of England because he, it recorded the wickedness of an Anglo-Saxon king. He shouldn't, shouldn't be remembered. I asked, uh, not too long ago, American historians indulged in just the opposite of regarding the vices of long-standing heroes and almost exulting in them. In my case, Conversing with a monk about the Abbe Sicard, I asked, can one write a biography of such a flawed individual? I'm already maligning him before we get into his character, but uh, his answer was, the year was 2009, this is the year of the priest. I found that astounding answer. But uh, well, exactly to me was, it was pretty clear what he meant. You know, not all priests are perfect. Not all priests are saints. Do we write only about the priests who are saints, only about the people who are saints? That is hagiography. Uh, and do we forget about the rest? The problem with hagiography in my mind, in the mind of many people, is that it writes only about the sacred characteristics of those people and makes them so unreal that they are inimitable. And they do little to provide an exemplum virtutis because it, the example is so high. The subject of this talk is the Abbe Roche Amboise Coucouron Sicard, who lived from 1742 to 1822, and who dropped the name Coucouron when he was about, I don't know exactly when, but uh, say 30 years old. I don't know why, but I can guess, because everybody in France whom I've told I'm working on, the Abbe Amboise Coucouron, Sicard, they say, Coucouron. <laughs> very, very funny name. So he, he probably was ridiculed in college, in school, in Toulouse with this name. And at some point after he joined a religious order, he dropped it and adopted the name of his mother, which was Sicard. Uh, he is known to the world of scholars of the deaf, which is a tiny world. Um, I gave a paper a few years ago with a historian of the deaf from the Naval Academy, Naval Academy in Annapolis. And she said she always has trouble composing a panel on this subject because there just aren't the people around doing deaf history or the audience interested in the history of the deaf. Um, anyway, Sicard is known to this tiny world as one of the originators of sign language and the founder of the first formal state school for deaf education in France in 1794, which was uh, imitated in Hartford with the first deaf school in the United States under his influence in 1816. 
I also became interested in him because of the importance which the Enlightenment and Revolution gave to language in general and to the possibility of a universal language which would serve not only the deaf but all mankind. And that, interesting enough, is what sign language purports to do. It's not supposed to be just for the deaf, but since it is not a translation into arbitrary conventional sounds, but imagistic uh, signs, uh, it is supposed to be more universal. That is, that is one of their claims. In any case, the Enlightenment was very interested in transcending the barriers of uh, national languages and reaching some kind of universal communication. So sign language got attention from people like Diderot uh, and others in the Enlightenment, as did the, the whole plight of the deaf and the blind during the, in the Enlightenment. What is curious is there's a transition between the Enlightenment and the Revolution when this gets co-opted by Abbe, Catholic Abbe um, of the church. I also became, uh, as it turned out, quite a bit had been written on Sicard and his inventions. Uh, as I said, you know, if you ask people in France today, do you, have you ever heard of the Abbe Roche, Ambroise, Cucaron, Sicard? Certainly not. Almost, almost never. Um, but uh, a certain amount had been written on him because there are people who are interested in sign language and the, in the institutionalization of education for disabled persons. So it comes under the whole you know, rubric of disability. And there are actually several very competent Parisian scholars who have written huge theses on the National Institute Institution of the Deaf and the Dumb which Sicard founded in 1794. So they have covered the institution and Sicard, you know, secondarily, but not a biography of Sicard, which I wanted to do. Now, another reason of interest in Sicard is he lived through the revolution, which is not the easiest thing to do. He lived in Paris, which is supplementarily more difficult to do in the revolution. And furthermore, he was a cleric. You know, priest, which is even more difficult to do. Uh, a lot of people solve this by defrocking. I use that part of that term in my title. Defrocking would be like the Abbe Siez, who is one of the most important uh, figures in the revolution. He, he created the concept of the nation, the French nation, and was at the root of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. And later had a big role in uh, devising the constitution of Napoleon. The Abbe Sicard defrocked. He wasn't really a priest. I don't know if he ever really was seriously. So many people became Abbe just because the church was a career, not because they had a vocation. Uh, there's another one, Fouché. Probably you've heard of him. Police minister of Napoleon. An incredibly unscrupulous person who prosecuted the terror mercilessly in the middle of France near Lyon, riding over the cemetery of the city of Moulin, death is an eternal sleep. Uh, you know, that sounds pretty innocent, but they didn't mean it. They meant, didn't mean it in an innocent way. They meant that's it. 
life ends at death. That was de-Christianization. And Fouché was one of its main protagonists. And he was a former abbé. Talleyrand is another one. Bishop became, as you know, one of the greatest girouette, I use that term, girouette of the revolution. Girouette is somebody who is a turn coder, turncoat, Van Cock, who changes with every regime, switches and changes his principles and tailors himself to meet the new requirements, so to speak. So girouette is a a phenomenon of the revolution. There's lots of them. I coined the term for myself, girouettisme, which means, you know, people, the practice of being a girouette. Um, so there is this question of whether Sicard practiced girouettisme or was a girouette in the revolution, and that's how he managed to survive. So that's, that's the main question of the talk. Um, Warren Carroll, the founder of this college, wrote a book, many books, but one book called The Guillotine and the Cross. And there is one chapter in there about martyrs, martyrs of the revolution. It's a beautiful chapter, well worth reading. That deals with people who did not sacrifice their principles, who did not adapt, and who got the acts of the guillotine as a result. You won't find that chapter or the substance of that chapter in any conventional history of the French Revolution that I know of, Trevor, Palmer, Gocho, etc. This isn't isn't emphasized. In the 19th century, it was. People wrote all the time about martyrs of the revolution. A friend of mine, Timothy Tackett, who taught a Catholic, he was Protestant, uh, did a history of the the civil constitution of the clergy and the oath to the civil constitution of the clergy in a very sort of statistical way. And he says, we've got to move away from this history of the martyrs of the revolution. You know, that's a, uh, that is hoary, uh, um, pious history. It's not real history. Well, in a sense, I think uh, we need to go back to it. But today I'm not doing that, not because I'm not interested in it, but because I was interested in Seacard deaf-mute education, and because he turned out to be, uh, you know, live this life to survive as a survivor of the revolution, so we have to deal with it. Uh, among the martyrs of the revolution are those of the Vendée. Uh, anybody familiar at least a little bit with the revolution knows that huge insurrection of the west of France against the Paris and the Convention led to thousands, maybe tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of deaths, and many of these people were beatified by John Paul II in his pontificate in the 1980s. Uh, I put together his biography from his published works, many of which are now on the web in French, and his letters in French and American archives, which are sort of scattered all over the place. Some at Gallaudet, naturally Gallaudet has the biggest collection of all his works, and Yale, uh, because of the the connection with Hartford. Uh, 
and Gallaudet, the Gallaudets came from Hartford. <clears throat> a former Toulouse member of the Doctrinaire, the third major teaching order in old regime France, Abbe Sicard enters history obscurely, the holder of many clerical benefices and the founder of the pilot school for the deaf in Bordeaux before Paris in 1786, he enjoyed the patronage of the reforming and enlightened Archbishop Champion de Cisse, a philanthrope who became Louis XVI's last chancellor. When Sicard moved to Paris in 1789 to succeed the Abbe de l'Epée, from whom he had taken instruction, his more famous the, the, the more famous pioneer of the new sign language, namely Epe, Sicard already had a brevet or certificate from Louis XVI as Instituteur Royal des Sourmouets, Royal Teacher of Deaf Moods. The fact that you know, Louis XVI would issue such a certificate is significant of the interest in this field or this, this, uh, this population. Sicard never took, nor did he ever refuse, the famous 1791 clerical oath to the civil constitution of the clergy, which nationalized the Church of France independently of Rome. He complained to a friend that it would jeopardize his salary. Later, that was a reason for a number of these clerics for you know, resisting the, the oath. Others, you know, a significant number of others, had higher reasons. Um, like, like the papacy, like the Pope, recognition of the Pope. Later, he appealed to the minister for an exemption enjoyed by the clerical hospital staff. Hospital staff are not supposed to have to take it. Later, uh, as a teacher, Sicard was spared the secularization of monks because he undoubtedly qualified as one of the useful clerics who escaped the decree of February 1790, suppressing monastic orders which were considered useless. Epe had occupied the former convent of the Célestins, which was nationalized in 1789 by the revolution with all the rest of the clergy's land. <clears throat> the deaf were a special category, not wholly private or public, to be given remedial instruction, the object of charity or bienfaisance, bienfaisance being the enlightenment word, kind of secularized charity. Good doing, do gooding, doing good. It was an internal boarding school, the Célestin, unlike virtually all primary schools with only a handful of students. For decades, it would be very small, 24 to 60 students at its maximum during the Restoration, ages 12 to 16. Sicard <clears throat> repeatedly referred to them as uncivilized. I mean, he did this over and over. Barbarians, savages, uncivilized. But then he went on to emphasize that when they learned sign language, they could communicate and they were civilized. Now, this is one of the reasons why Sicard has not a very good reputation among the deaf, because um, the deaf don't like, didn't like then and don't like now to, to be called those names. But, uh, and deaf historians have followed that uh, line pretty much. I would only emphasize that he did believe they were wholly civilized, that they could be very intelligent. In fact, he he exhibited them and demonstrated them publicly in Paris, in London, in Toulouse, in Bordeaux, uh, for a fee, um, before a large public of you know aristocrats, royalty, international visitors to Paris, etc. Became a became a real phenomenon. 
So, you know, he obviously thought they were capable. He obviously thought they could be intelligent. Um, but maybe he emphasized the importance of communication because that was what he was giving them. I don't know. On the 21st of July, 1791, a deputy of the Considerant Assembly, Prior de la Marne, a future regicide and member of the Terrorist Committee of Public Safety, Safety Committee of 12, proposed to the Constituent Assembly that the property of the Célestins be definitely assigned to the deaf mutes and that Sicard should be recognized as the worthy successor of the Abbé de Lepé because of his knowledge of the general grammar of sign language, which can be considered one of the most wonderful discoveries of the human mind. That's prior. As well as Sicard's, and this is what is most surprising, as well as Sicard's teaching of metaphysics and religion from the beginning of the world to the epoch of the death of the founder of this same religion. This is coming from the mouth of a man who in two years, three years, two years, would become one of the prosecutors of de dechristianization. This deference for sign language had become common, if not fashionable, <laughs> by the acknowledgement of traditional religion and but the acknowledgement of traditional religion and metaphysics is quite surprising coming from a future member of the Committee of Public Safety which to which would try to extirpate Christianity. Prior went on to list the useful productions of the deaf, and that is always one of their selling points for the legislatures, printing press, engravers, shops, various manufacturers. And the printing press was a serious operation. It printed two of the most important journals of the period. The 1791 bill provided the school for the Celestin with salaries for seven teachers and 24 scholarships for needy students, which is the case of most students. About the decree, after the decree was adopted, Sicard approached the bar to express his gratitude to the assembly, whose humanity and pity, he said, for the thousands of, quote, unfortunate deaf condemned to remain always silent in their, quote, afflicted families, unquote, was commendable. At his beckoning, his students came forth and presented a model, a maquette, of the famous fraternal festival of 1790 of the year before, commemorating, commemorating the storming of the Bastille. Sicard, Sicard promised that this new innocent troop of patriots will raise their pure hands this evening towards the sky, pledging to be faithful to the nation which has adopted them and will never forget them, forget the names of their august benefactors. <clears throat> the nation had adopted the deaf. The deaf had paid homage to the nation. Later, Sicard that summer wrote a letter of congratulations to a lifelong friend, André Lafon de Ladibat, a wealthy Protestant shipper from Bordeaux who had been elected a deputy to the second assembly of the revolution, the legislative assembly, that month. Sicard welcomed Ladibat to the capital but expressed uneasiness about the political future. He expressed vague hopes that Ladibat could correct the deficiencies of the outgoing Constituent Assembly, but avowed, our legislators have not harvested the whole field of glory. We have to glean after them. Their laws remain to be tested. So he really, you know, it's not, and 
what he said in the assembly and with the students and everything was one uh, demonstration and what he feels privately is, is, is slightly different. That's not, not so unusual. For many on the left, the Cordeliers and the Jacobins and the Drondons, however, it was only a matter of time before a republic would replace the monarchy. In fact, a recent historian of the revolution has called the constitutional monarchy of 1789, in actuality, a republic under the guise of a monarchy. I find that expression brilliant because it does express what Louis XVI was living through for two, three years from 1789 to his death, due to his uh, deposition. <clears throat> in July 1792, Sicard published, and this comes closer to the question of faith and reason, a unique catechism or instruction, Christian instruction, for the usage of deaf mutes. He uses the word Christian instruction rather than Catholic. The word Christian <coughs> represents a shift. The doctrinaire of which he was a member, religious order, uh, before he had left, uh, was founded in the Catholic Reformation to teach doctrine through the Catholic Catechism inaugurated at Trent. It was a new genre of uh, religious work. The Carthusian monk Domgero, depicted at the center of Jacques-Louis David's enormous unfinished canvas, the Tennis Court Oath, as a scene of reconciliation, had proposed in 1790 that the nation had adopt Catholicism as the religion of state something it had been for centuries, but was now not taken for granted. Protestants and Jews had been emancipated, and conflicting baptismal certificates, Christian certificates, had become the occasion for a secularized etat civil, or state monopoly of the records of vital acts. Dom Gero's proposal was roundly rejected for the less universal formula that Napoleon would later use Catholicism is the religion of the majority of the French. So Sicard's use of the word Christian was striking, especially by a former doctrinaire. Um, the Reformation had provoked the diffusion of catechisms as a new genre. <clears throat> the revolution whose evangelical character Tocqueville compared to that of the Reformation, spilling over its borders, spawned hundreds of patriotic catechisms, which initiated imitated the exact form of the Catholic catechisms. You had questions and answers. What is the nation? The nation is the body of the people. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty, you know, nothing to do with the Christian religion. Everything um, transferred to the, to the nation, the revolution, and the state, but the form is identical. It's called the catechism, patriotic, national catechism, questions and answers. In fact, in the in the movie Danton, there's a scene where um, there's a child in Robespierre's home who is being um, slapped because he didn't recite the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen correctly. Sicard's idiosyncratic catechism appeals to the deaf mutes themselves as its co-authors, whose responses and even mistakes are allowed to stand. His, this catechism has been in some way the work of his reason, the deaf mute's reason, and of his judgment. And then he goes on to give examples. The examples are, question, what did the apostles find Jesus Christ gave them to eat and drink? 
Answer, the apostles saw only the appearance and the form of bread and wine. Jesus Christ changed the bread into his body and the wine into his blood. The deaf were supposed to have come up with that answer completely on their own by an analytical method. He uses the word analytical, which is an enlightenment word. They're not supposed to have been taught it. It is utterly disingenuous and nearly deist to claim that deaf mutes reach these conclusions on their own. Nobody can reach, I don't think, that conclusion on their own uh, without having you know, read it in the Bible, being taught it by Christ or by the church. Nonetheless, it foreshadows a powerful motif of deaf culture which grows in time. The deaf can do it themselves. Look at Gallaudet today, his appointment of presidents, two presidents. Sikar um, was tapping into that, and he always used that motif, you know, that I need to live with the deaf, the deaf teach me their signs, because they had signs before they came to school, and I translate those signs back for them. The survival of the traditional catechism was in question by 1792. The only extant Catholic catechisms of these years known to me are a dozen conserved at Harvard's Widener Library, salvaged doubtless from the common fate of burned counter-revolutionary prints. The Harvard catechisms are entitled Catholic. They attack the schismatic civil constitution of the clergy, which nationalized the church, and denounced the catechisms denounce, quote, false priests and, quote, intruders, or, quote, wolves in sheep's clothing, referring to the constitutional, you know, juring priests of the revolution. They are anchored in Christian antiquity like St. Athanasius and San Cyprian, many of them martyrs for the unity of the church and doctrine, while patriotic catechisms appeal to the heroes of antiquity to justify the nation rather than the church. Now, Sicard had a collaborator in his uh, school, uh, in the Celestin, whose name was Valentin Howey, who is the teacher of the blind rather than the deaf, and who is a master of a dozen languages, had been a translator under the old regime. Now, Sicard kept getting funds from the government for the deaf-mutes, and he gave very little to Howey. And so an antagonism grew up between the two men. Uh, the reason for this is deaf mute was a very popular cause, almost sensational cause, because sign language managed to overcome the, the injustices of nature, as they put it, you know, the injustices of mutism. Uh, whereas, you know, teaching the blind uh, was not quite such a great transformation. The, the loss of sight, uh, I disagree, but the loss of sight <laughs> was considered less serious than the loss of speech. Howie was a married man with children, an oath-taker, and later deistic philanthropes of the religious conflicts between the two as well, before the revolution run. In April 1792, Howie complained to the Committee of Public Instruction of Sicard's monopoly of the funds, and Sicard's treating of the blind as, quote, pure machines that had no need of education. Evidently, in 1792, Howie had told Sicard students that the abbe was a rascal, a coquin, who had escaped the justice of the people. We'll see why in a minute. A Gallaudet professor has uh, commented that uh, 
this conflict between the blind and the deaf is very common. I don't know. After four hours searching his papers, um, Seacard was a victim, I'll skip over this a little bit, of the massacres of 1792. Uh, he wasn't a victim, but he's a close victim. These are called the September Massacres, and the casualties were around 1,300, mostly priests and aristocrats in several different prisons in Paris. The reason for it was that the monarchy had been overthrown, the Russians and the Prussians were invading the northern France, and the priests who had failed to take the oath were considered counter-revolutionaries against the revolution. Aristocrats were considered that just by virtue of their birth, and so they began corralling all these priests and nobles into prisons like the huge Benedictine abbeys Saint-Germain, on the Boulevard Saint-Germain, where Sicard ended up. Sicard was saved from being pierced by a sword by a watchmaker or a sankolot, common artisan. <clears throat> His name is Monoy. You have a picture there of him in a colored picture. And Monod steps between the assailant and Sicard and says, Stop! You will not pierce this man unless you go through my body. And somebody else comes up and says something, more or less the same thing. This is the teacher of the deaf mutes, the friend of the people. How can you possibly assassinate Sicard? Sicard writes the assembly, his friend, Ladibot, but Ladibot thinks, since I was involved in defending the king in August 1792, if I intervene, that will be Sicard's death. So he goes to a radical member of the assembly named Chabot, an ex-Franciscan, licentious, future member of the Committee of Public Safety, and one of the most radical, radical de-Christianizers. But Chabot in this moment, I guess, wasn't all that. He was on his way. He was a radical Jacobin. And he went to the prison and saved Sikon. Only somebody of Chabot's color, so to speak, could have done that at this particular moment. Sikard then writes the assembly again, and he comes to the assembly, and there's a big show of, of um, applause and congratulations. Uh, his students make an appearance again. Saved. Not only is he saved, but he gets the title Bienfaiteur de l'Humanité, Benefactor of Humanity. And that sticks with him for the rest of his life. He becomes the célèbre instituteur des surdmouets, the famous teacher of deaf mutes. It's hard for us to stretch our imaginations to conceive how this could have happened. How a teacher of deaf mutes. 16 deaf mutes during the revolution could have gotten such uh, favor. But uh, the cause was, uh, you know, I don't know if there's anything comparable today, especially when it's so small, uh, was uh, pronounced. Okay. Um, skipping over here a little bit. That wasn't the end for Sicard. <coughs> In the year two, the famous revolutionary calendar, 
C-card is brought before the Revolutionary Committee of the Arsenal. Arsenal is on near the Marais on the left, the right bank. And he's denounced um, as a counter-revolutionary, just as he had been earlier when he was arrested for the Abbe. Because he was because he was a refractory priest, he was you know a non-juring priest, and um, he's arrested. I'm not clear whether he ever actually went to prison this time, but he's arrested. And then the arsenal, you know, they consult. He, he's he's double-crossed again by Howie. Howie turned him in the first time, you know, denounced him. And apparently how he did it the second time. And the Arsenal had cons consented again to Sicard's release, claiming his release would be all the more dangerous because he possesses the capability of hiding his incivism, incivic nature, underneath a patriotic exterior and serving the case of tyrants. Nevertheless, he was released. Um, he was released only because his students once more intervened and you have a series of signatures there uh, which formed the end of a petition uh, led by his favorite student Massieu M-A-S-S-I-E-U a boy with a great deal of gumption who had made a citizen arrest of a pop, uh, of a thief just before the revolution, pickpocket. And Massieu led this um, intervention once more. And this is how it reads. You have the signatures, I have the text in translation. <clears throat> I think those signatures may constitute one of the earliest lists of deaf-mute uh, signatures. I haven't seen any earlier. We come before the committee to instruct you that Citizen Sikart, this is Massieu speaking, our father, our friend, and our teacher, he is a prisoner and that he was arrested last Friday afternoon. We do not know why we believe that it was because he, he, he still said his mass, but we believe that it was because he still said his mass. We are very upset that Citizen Sikart is in prison and that we have lost him because we were all his children me in particular, and he dressed us and nourished us as well as took me for his son. I lost my father, my brothers and sisters, all are dead. My unfortunate mother is very poor. We were five deaf mutes in one family. We hope that the citizen Seacard will not say mass any longer and that he will no longer be a priest and that he will be like a man who never said mass. We beseech you to release him because he knows perfectly well how to, do, how to instruct deaf mutes. When the citizen Seacard shall have Liberated and returned, been liberated and returned to us. If he still says mass, if he is arrested, we will abandon him. We will not come asking the committee for him anymore. We love the citizen Seacard a lot. Return him to us. How much catechism did Seacard teach his students? Well, you know, it wasn't just Seacard who is acting on. You know, acting a little bit like a girouette or acting from expediency. But his students realized that that was the issue, probably, with Seacard. In fact, the committee had said, had complained that he said Mass secretly in the Celestin. And then they said, if he's going to say Mass, let him say Mass across the boulevard, 
at St. Paul, big, broke, Catholic church. Well, that was in the middle of de-Christianization. That's rather odd. You know, they, they were telling priests not to say mass at all. They were forcing them to abdicate, to abjure the Christian religion, tearing down churches, desecrating uh, the host, etc. So to say that, you know, don't say mass secretly, that was always a worry of revolutionaries, these secret conventicles. Uh, but go ahead and say it across the street. Um, you know, nothing is absolutely consistent. So Sicard, even though he was considered a very dangerous man, their words, a very dangerous man, was released. Howie had been very active in the Revolutionary Committee of the Arsenal, and he was responsible. Now, Howie tried to exculpate himself by saying that during the September massacres, he had, uh, Seacard had been mistaken for himself, and that somehow Howie stood in for Seacard to save him, instead of ruining him, that he didn't denounce him, that he didn't turn him in. Seacard was enraged when he heard this. Quote, all Europe knew how the instructor of the deaf mutes was saved. I wrote immediately to the legislative body, and they answered with a decree. How could Howie compare these two institutions, that of the deaf and that of the blind? One limited to a pure mechanism, which yet produced nothing but tavern musicians, while the other presents itself to an astonished Europe as the masterpiece of human genius. Well, <laughs> this is where all contemporaries pretty much agree that Sicard had one fatal flaw, which was vanity. <laughs> and at his death, uh, the head of the French Academy, of which he became a member later on, said the only thing is it was so transparent that it was forgivable. Seacard was naively vain, naively boastful, and he just couldn't contain his, uh, his, uh, his extraordinary impression of himself. <laughs> now, Seacard almost got in trouble himself after he got Howie arrested for that in the counter-terror, the white terror, after the red terror of, of, of the Robespierre. And the way that happened was that somebody discovered a letter of Sicard to his erstwhile liberator, Couthon, the ex-Franciscan libertine dechristianizer, member of the Committee of Public Safety, bloodshedder. That wasn't a good thing, to have a letter to Couthon. In the terror, friendships, letters, associations, you know, could indict you, could, could ruin you. And so what happened, this, this gets really convoluted, but I haven't done it myself, um, is that another member, another conventional, another regicide named Joseph Lacanal, an educator who ended up his days in Louisiana as an exile, saw this letter in Couthon's notebook and realized what it would mean if anybody read it to Sicard, you know, for Sicard's fate. So what did Lacanal do? He ripped it out. 
and ripping it out, he saved Sikar from another imprisonment and possibly more. Because the white terror, the anti-terror, was ruthless also. It wasn't as formal, as legal, but it was fratricidal, especially in the southwest, southeast. So, um, one more moderate, uh, one moderate regicide conventionnel, that is, member of the convention which executed Louis XVI, wrote in his memoirs an attempt to explain how Sicard survived. And this is what he says. The school of deaf mutes directed by the Abbe Sicard, originally from Bordeaux, fundamentally an enemy of the revolution, but an adroit courtier who knew how to bend with the circumstances. He was reproached as being quite venal, antichristé, a bit of a charlatan. He was accused of that because of sign language. Some people took it, bought it, some people didn't. And mirroring the brilliance of his master, the Abbe de l'Epée, his predecessor. The Abbe Sicard had a good deal of difficulty surviving the terror. He owed his salvation to several members of the committee, which did not find him a particularly political personage, dangerous political personage, especially due to what they thought would be the impossibility of replacing him. Key thing. It is rather odd that at the time this consideration could have outweighed raison d'etat, to which they sacrificed men no less valuable and establishments no less useful. Scores of generals, for instance. But the cause of the deaf mutes was popular and in favor, doubtless because it aimed to endow by art what nature had denied. Thibodeau may exaggerate Sicard's opportunism, but he confirms the judgment of the Arsenal and others during the revolution. But philanthropy was still in the air, and philanthropy had the day. Sicard survived because he was a teacher of deaf mutes, despite the fact that he had the reputation of being anti-revolutionary and certainly, you know, a non-juror in the middle of the terror, uh, which was, I think, I think it's got to be quite, quite rare. He went on in the directory, the next regime from 1795 to 95 to edit what was called the Catholic Annals. Here he does not seem to be at all a girouette or at all a compromiser. On the contrary, he's totally papist, totally critical of the constitutional church in two years of weekly issues. And um, it's quite a remarkable publication, if only by its title, Catholic Annals in the Middle of the French Revolution. I don't think there's another title like that. The police agent who wrote the six-page report on this journal in 1797 complained of the legend of martyrs it propagated, but then admitted that the legend was, quote, only too true, unquote. Again, another surprise. A police agent calling the legend of martyrs only too true. 
And then he focused on the hostility to the constitutional church, to the marriages of the other church. Obviously, the Annal was at loggerheads with the Republican legality. And what happened was that the police official concluded that we should be nice to Sicard because he's done so much for the cause of deaf mutes. Once more, how many times? Over and over. To defend himself once more, Sicard denied he had ever been a royalist, uh, which is, I think, probably credible, at least overtly, that he had been a zealous Republican, which is not too credible. But then in any case, he followed St. Paul's epistle to the Romans 13, in which the apostle recommended recognition of all existing authorities as established by God, and which he could do in good conscience. The directory annulled the elections of 177 deputies on the 18th of Fructidor, dismissed several directors, closed down 40 journals, and deported hundreds of priests. Sicard was destined to go to Suriname. His friend Ladebat did end up going to Guyana. He was a legislator at the time. Sicard did not. He hid in Paris in a hospital. He wrote two books, 100 books. He had friends communicating with him. I think he was in very close quarters, but he avoided deportation just as he had avoided execution. Uh, We get to the end of the story with the 18th of Brumaire, which is Napoleon's advent to power. I believe Napoleon was instrumental in in releasing him, allowing him to come out of his hiding place. And then there was a well-known playwright known Jean-Nicolas Bouy, B-O-U-I-L-L-Y, who produced a comedy in 1800 called The Abbé de l'Épée. And it was very popular. It was shown at the Théâtre de la République, the main Republican theater of Paris. And I won't go into the plot, but it, it, it is very favorable to Épée. And then Sicard by association just like Seacard had suffered by association with kind of refractory priests all through the revolution. Now he was totally identified with the cause of the death. With De Lepay, he was very, very well liked. Uh, it all had ended up in um, balcony with the Bonapartes. Joseph Bonaparte, possibly also Napoleon, the, the documentation is, is a little bit unclear. Josephine, definitely. And everybody's crying. Um, the students are there, coming back to him, you know, embracing him. His female students, a little bit demure, but they're also you know, very happy to have him back. Uh, Massieu, the student, throws himself around his neck, bursting in tears. End of the, end of the story. Um, the question is, the conclusion is, it's actually very, very, very short, whether Sicard was a Girouette. <clears throat> and how harsh should we be in judging Girouette during a period like the French Revolution? I go back to the initial point, you know, there were martyrs, hundreds of martyrs, 
hundreds of heroic people. Some of them didn't have any choice but to be martyrs. Many of them, perhaps most of them. Sicard was agile, he was an operator, uh, and he had a profession that was useful. The phenomenon we've seen also in the Soviet Union, where scientists have been so vital to the state, or so famous internationally, that the government can't do anything about it. They can't get rid of them. So Janitsyn wasn't a scientist, but he certainly fills that category now. He was overthrowing the state, practically. And they didn't dare kill him. They had to deport him. Um, other scientists like Lavoisier, Bailly, did fall under the guillotine. And other abbés like Talleyrand and Siez and Fouché were far more blatant turncoats and girouette than Sicard. Sicard uh, perhaps could be described as using casuistry or reserve, mental reservation or um, dissemblance. There was a famous political thinker of the revolution named Benjamin Constant, some of you probably have heard of him, liberal philosopher who said, hypocrisy is justifiable during terror as a means of survival. It is obviously not the most noble means of, of acting, but it, is, it was a means of survival. When Sicard, lost uh, the conclusion here, Sicard, um, the revolution treated Sicard well, and the deaf mutes stayed by Sicard, and the revolution stayed by the teacher of the deaf mutes. Okay. I should mention, for the sake of Americanists here, people who are interested more in America than in France, which must be just about everybody, um, that Sicard had a great influence on the Gallaudets, on Thomas Hopkins Gallaudet, who founded with one of Sicard's best students, the Hartford School, the Hartford Asylum for the Deaf and the Dumb, 1816, and he influenced also Philadelphia and other establishments up and down the East Coast. Student was named Lauren Clerk. Uh, so there is a tie there, and there's also a tie with St. Petersburg, where the Empress, wife of Paul I, mother of Alexander I, corresponded with Sicard to get a teacher sent from Paris to St. Petersburg, where they used Sicard's methods to start a school there. And finally in Spain, the same thing, uh, around 1815, uh, the principal teacher of the deaf was a, uh, not a direct disciple, I, I used Sicard's works to start the deaf school in Madrid. <coughs> Um, okay, I, don't, I could go on because I've lived with this thing for six years. Eight years, I guess. Um, the question, you said that um, 
Picard's motives for uh, becoming a priest were maybe a bit uh, suspect. It was a way to position and such. But it's interesting that in order to pursue his scientific work, he said, well, the priesthood was a good route to do that. Could you say a little bit more about well, I, I think he became a priest before he became an instructor of the deaf. He, he was born in Toulouse, 1740s, and he joined the Doctrinaire in 1761. And he left for some reason. I don't know anything about that, but he left the Doctrinaire. Lots of them left. You know, it was a period of the depletion of monastic vocations and priestly vocations. And then he became... Uh, you know, he, he sort of uh, rubbed soldiers with a lot, rubbed shoulders with a lot of influential people in Bordeaux. Uh, shippers like Ladibat and uh, the Archbishop Cisse. And he got involved in a Masonic Lodge, which was not uncommon for the clergy in the middle of the 18th century. About a quarter of the Masonic Lodges were clergymen, um, at least in the, in the academies. And uh, so th there were the thought societies, you know, Musée, and um, then he started this school for the deaf under the prompting, I think, of the Archbishop Cisse. Cisse was you know, very, very philanthropic. And that was an extremely small affair. You know. But then he, went, he was sent to, board, to, to, to uh, Paris, where he learned from the Abbé de la Paix. The Abbé de la Paix recognized him almost immediately as being too ambitious and trying to outdo him. Um, and actually, I should mention that that's one of the most important things about the whole, whole history, is that Pay relied on rote memorization of nouns through science. You have an example, early example of finger spelling there. And Sicard changed that whole thing and impressed uh, the legislators and the jurors by introducing grammar and syntax into the language of deaf mutes. That's his whole claim to fame. There was a logic to the, you know, the expressions. It wasn't just a corruption of jumbles of nouns. But that doesn't answer your question, I'm sorry. Um, no, he was a priest before being a deaf instructor. And you know, I think he was a, he was a priest. He said mass during the terror. There are very few priests who did that in Paris, I think. They talk about a few, but there's not, it just wasn't tolerated. 20,000 priests abdicated during the terror. Abdicated or abjured, that's the, that's the estimate. So if one kind of goes along that, that, those same lines, if, if someone was going to make the case that we should absolve him of Gioetisme, if, if we're going to say he's not a Gioet, uh, we'd say, uh, there are certain red lines that he doesn't cross. Uh, he doesn't take, you know, the oath to the civil constitution, right. for example. Major red line. Right. The, the, he doesn't go there. Uh, he uh, puts himself at that great personal risk to avoid crossing those red lines. So you one can say he's not Italian, or he's not a whatever. But also that, that maybe his um, his ministry to the deaf mutes did emerge from a kind of authentic principle belief in the in in some aspects of the Enlightenment. Uh, yes. In other words, that, that, that he was a clergyman who was also uh, enthusiastic about some aspects of the Enlightenment before the terror, before it became dangerous to be a clergyman, and, and therefore... For, for genuine reasons, and there's some things he wrote in a very short piece on syntax, which I think is terrific. It's only about 15 pages long, which should be translated. But, um, yes, he's interested in Enlightenment language. 
But also you have to realize, you know, the Enlightenment is kind of a badge of acceptability in Enlightenment society and in the revolution. So he is somebody who is certainly conscious of his public image and of being accepted. But he, as you said, he does not sacrifice his priesthood or his Christianity really much at all. <coughs> Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, he, he might not be a martyr or a, a heroic figure in that sense, mm-hmm. but he, uh, he definitely puts himself at risk by not crossing certain lines. And, and if, if things had shaken out differently, we might see him as a martyr. You know, if, if there hadn't been a convenient song moved in the right spot or something like that. <laughs> right, right. And, and the other point, I think, you know, Sicard is dismissed so often because he's so vain. I mean, when, when the Pope visits his institution in 1805, just after crowning Napoleon, and Sicard has it all arranged, and, you know, it's an official visit, shows them all the workshops and everything. And then he prints an account of this, 20-page account after, after the visit. And it's unbelievable, it's unbelievable that Sicard would print this. I mean, the last, the last part of the account is a statement by Sicard to the Pope saying, your holiness, this is all I have done. I have mastered the science of deaf mute uh, uh, education. <laughs> Somebody asked me, what did the Pope say? I don't know. I've looked. I haven't found yet. I don't, he was probably flabbergasted. <laughs> or, or he was already he was already used to it with Napoleon. <laughs> this was an age of self-promotion. I mean, that's another angle you could take, you know, the romantic self, the self-fashioning, the self-infatuation. That's maybe more than the Enlightenment, a big enemy of religion. Professor, if I can read what Chris McGuire said, um, what kept coming across to me in some ways, but I guess what saved him was he didn't take the oath. Mm -hmm. Sounds like an opportunist. Like he sees upon me, the, um, he saw the opportunity to save himself or whatever, and he moved in, in, in whatever direction. Yeah, but you know, I think when they came to arrest him uh, the first time, in, just before the September massacre, I would assume he could have taken the oath right then and there. I don't see why not. But he doesn't. He delays, and then he takes the oath of equality and fraternity after. Few months later, which doesn't have anything to do with religion. So he was willing to you know, subscribe to the revolution. He wasn't wild about it, but he was willing to live with it. Um, but he wasn't willing to take the oath. I don't think. I mean, there's no reason why he shouldn't, he couldn't have taken it. All he said was, I was never asked to. It wasn't required of all priests. The majority of priests didn't take it. Not all of which is true. They were shoving the oath down. It was really very, very severe enforcement in some places. Chasing priests out of their parish because they wouldn't take the oath. Forcing them to be refugees, emigrants. Legislating against emigrant priests or non-Jewish priests in 1792. 
it was a very severe repression. Actually, it's interesting that uh, a historian, a secular historian like Fure, Francois Fure, uh, considered the oath to be the great error of the revolution from a political point of view. I suppose you could say the great error of the Clinton administration was something else recent. Um, and that it divided France. You know, I mean, there were, it went 50-50, pretty much. 50% took it, 50% opposed it. And the population, the same way. So it was one of the great sources of counter-revolution and civil war. And what he calls the derailment of the revolution. It's original course. So I don't think it was that easy to evade the oath. He was in a particular position which made it a little bit easier, you know, not being a parish priest where it was definitely required. But you know, still 